Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. I right, want to welcome everyone back for our second week in our study. As we continue our study of the gospel and the kingdom of God, and now this study is looking at the gospel, the kingdom of God, and the question of justice or the mission of God's people. And those two things kind of overlap. And I was saying before we got on the recording to, to those who are on the, on the Zoom call, that I really think this study itself, in kind of culmination from the ones that we've done for the last six months or so, for those that have been with us, is one of the most significant studies we can do. Now, I hope when we're done with this one, we'll go back to studying books of the Bible and what have you, but I really feel that this study is extremely significant. So it is being recorded. You can go back and listen to it on the recording also. So we started last week, just review a little bit, and we kind of didn't finish, but I think we kind of did, and I'll just kind of summarize where we were, and then we'll get into this week's notes, that the gospel is that the good news that God's the king and that Jesus is Lord. We've always said that Jesus is Lord and kind of kept it there, but knowing all along that we want to expand that definition later on. So if we expand the definition, we'd say that God is the king and that Jesus is the Lord and that God has already begun to establish his new creation in Jesus and that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been redeemed and become partakers in the kingdom through his death and resurrection. Secondly, the kingdom of God, we defined that last week, is the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation. And one way to easily summarize that would be to say, you know, what is the kingdom of God? And say, well, what's the kingdom of God going to be in the new Jerusalem? I mean, that's the end goal. And that's kind of what we're working towards. Now, I really want to stress, as I think I've done many times, that we are not to kind of sit back and relax and wait until the new Jerusalem comes. We're supposed to strive towards the new Jerusalem making that something that becomes a reality now in the present, in the life of the church. And we had a little conversation at the end of last week of that there's some sense in which the work we do now actually lasts into the new creation of the new Jerusalem. But we, we noted that 1 Corinthians 15 ends with basically saying that what we do now matters. Oh, by the way, Sandy, I have a, a, a more response for you also. I didn't get one from my Hebrew scholar, but your comment on Isaiah 65, the former things won't be remembered. I, I think and again, I have a Hebrew scholar that's an Isaiah, Isaiahic specialist that I'm going to try to get to. I think what it's talking about, it's the same idea that we noted in Revelation 21. The, the former things that are not remembered are death and suffering and tragedy. And it's, it's not that we don't remember them like literally in our minds, but they don't exist any longer. Th those things are gone. They're done away with. Just like Revelation 21 says, heaven and earth, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time and the first earth passed away in Revelation 21.1. But then in verse four, it says, there's no more mourning or crying or pain or death. That's what passes away. So I think the same, the same idea is actually in Isaiah 65. I think it's verse uh, 17 that says the former things aren't going to be remembered. Do you have a comment? So it's not like our memory of it is wiped away. It's just that it's not something that you have to be concerned about any longer. Stated even better than I, than I did. I, exactly. Yeah, very well. Okay. No problem. So the kingdom of God that is a totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation. One way of thinking about it is what is it going to be like in the new Jerusalem? And there's a difficult passage in Mark 10, by the way, where Jesus says, sorry, guys, I don't allow divorce at all because that's not what God intended in this creation. And when you read Mark 10 all by itself, you're like, well, that doesn't 
you know, gosh, that's a little harsh. The passage actually is really harsh. And some people will go, well, okay, but when you go to Matthew's gospel and Matthew's reading Mark, Matthew makes note of the fact that, well, divorce is permissible in cases of unfaithfulness. And, and that's fine. But the way to answer Mark is not to say, oh, well, you know, Mark's really harsh, but Matthew softens it. It's to say, Jesus is talking in the gospel of Mark about what God intended and what it is going to be in the new creation. That doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions allowed. It's an ideal. And in the ideal world, we don't have any sin in the church. And there, therefore, there isn't these issues in the church. And the people of God are supposed to live out this kingdom of God mentality where there's, there's just no reason for divorce. Obviously, we go, well, obviously, there's going to be still reasons for divorce, Jesus. And, and the answer is, well, yeah, I know that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm giving this ideal state of this is what I want the kingdom of God to be. Certainly, there are exceptions that are, that are going to be allowed. And that's why the, the letters of the New Testament are so important, because the letters kind of come along and say, okay, let's take that kingdom thing that Jesus was talking about now. Let's put this into real life, because the letters are just like real life. These are churches with conflicts and problems and issues. One more note on that here. The kingdom of God is the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation. And therefore, we look to the new Jerusalem and say, you know, what does God, what's it going to be like in the new Jerusalem? And we kind of implement that now. And this is just my opinion. And I know some of you may or may not agree with this. But for example, I think in the new Jerusalem, there's complete equality upon male and female and Jew and Gentile and slave and free. And therefore, the church should go, oh, well, someday there'll be equality between male and female. No. We're supposed to actually implement that now. We should be implementing now the equality between male and female because that's A, what God intended in Genesis, B, what God's bringing about in the New Jerusalem. And since the new creation has already begun, we should begin to implement that. Now, I would say that you have to implement that with some cultural relevance in mind. So that if you're maybe in a certain culture where, you know, maybe you're in a strict Islamic culture, you go, well, right, we're going to work towards this. And we're going to work towards it slowly and carefully. And I think that's what's happening in, in the New Testament, by the way. The reason why you don't see this like fully blossom in, in the New Testament is because like, well, this is, we're already creating enough ripples with eating these foods and with eating with Gentiles and with not requiring circumcision. And okay, so let's take this one slowly. And some communities were taking it quicker than others. Culture is an excuse, but it's, it shouldn't be a great excuse for long. So here we go. The next thing that we talked about then was the fact that God is on a mission. That's what we want to get into tonight. And the last point of the notes from last week that we didn't finish up was that we are the agents of that mission. And this can't be understated. What we did in our last set of studies was we said, let's talk about spiritual formation and what that means. And what I would summarize by saying is that spiritual formation means that we're to grow in the likeness and image of Jesus Christ himself. Or how about this? We are children of God. And if we're children of God, we're supposed to actually act like God acts. To be a child of or a son of, and obviously we'll say sons and daughters of, to be a son of meant to have the characteristics and attributes and qualities of that person or thing that you are a son of. That's why when Jesus says you're sons of the devil, it's like, yeah, that's not a, not a good thing there. And you wonder why they had him crucified. We're sons of God and daughters of God. That means we act like God. And what we do in that is we make God known because we are the agents through which God does the work of his kingdom. And the best example of that is John 13, 35. They'll know you are my disciples if you love one another. Why? Because God is love. 
And when we love, we are what? We're doing what God does. Passed in Luke 6 about love, and you'll be sons and, uh, and daughters of the Most High when you do this. And the point of that actually is, is Luke saying, hey, love the people, you'll know, love your enemies and love without expecting anything in return. Where in the Roman world, they would, they would love and they would do good things because, well, you now because I did these good things, hey, you're going to give me a job on Monday, right? Or because I, I did these good things, you're going to loan back to me something else. Or now you're in my debt until you pay me back or you, know, you owe me. But when you have that mentality, basically what you're doing is you only, you only loan to those who can pay you back, either equals or someone superior. And then they you know, obligate back. The people below you who can't afford to pay you back, th- those are the ones who you lend without expecting anything in return. You don't loan to them. And Jesus is saying, no, give to everybody. Love everyone at all times. He says, because if you do that, you'll be sons of the most high. Well, think about this. Everyone by definition is an inferior to God. When God loves, he by definition loves people below him. There is no one equal to him and no one above him. So when we love those who are below us and those who are the outcasts and the the poor and the destitute and the people who can't pay us back, we're acting like God acts. If I were to summarize everything that we're going to get into, even in this study here, I'd say, look, God's already in the process of building his kingdom. His kingdom, which we're going to get into tonight, is about making him known. And he's called us to be the agents of that kingdom. I guess I'm done for tonight. Let's roll into tonight. And what I want to do now is, and it's really the first point that I want to make tonight, which if you have the notes, it's called the Emmanuel Principle. That's going to be the key one. And then the last 20 or so minutes of our study, we'll just kind of be having some fun with understanding a little bit more depth. And when we get down to Romans 12, one and two at the very end, uh, that'll, that'll be kind of the goal. Yeah, I just had a quick question. Um, I heard it taught that uh, as far as loving everyone, when you talked about what you did to the least of these, you did to me as well. And I've heard it taught that the least of these is often terms implied to be believers who are struggling, not necessarily everyone. I've always been in the mindset that somebody on the street who's, you know, without resources and needs love, needs love, period. I don't care if they're right. not personal. Right. Yeah. Right. Can you speak to that? Because yes. like I said, I've heard it taught the other way. So, Yes. Well, probably because you read my book. Because <laughs> There's two things. Number one, without question, we are to love everyone, period. That's the fundamental ethic of Jesus. When you love everyone, period, you are acting like God who, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So love is to be the defining characteristic of God's people. We love the Lord our God and we love our neighbor as ourselves, and our neighbor is defined as everyone and anyone. What's happening in Matthew 25, which is, that was the title of my book, These Brothers of Mine. What's happening in Matthew 25, and this will be interesting because we're interviewing Bruce Fisk on our podcast for the Gospel of Matthew. And and Bruce and I have gone back and forth on this a little bit. And Bruce is, an, uh, I'd say, an expert on the issue of Genesis 12.3. In the New Te- he's a New Testament scholar. Genesis 12.3 says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And he's talking to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And this becomes this major issue today that divides up evangelicalism. Does the promise to Abraham apply to Christians or does it apply to the Jewish people as a whole? In other words, are the Jewish people still under this Abrahamic promise that those who bless Israel or the Jewish people, God will bless, and those who curse the Jewish people, God will curse? Or does God mean that this, the children of Abraham according to faith, which would have been the righteous remnant of Israel, then through Jesus, and then through the church? 
And so I think you actually have two different conversations happening there. I think what Matthew 25 is doing, it's actually interpreting Genesis 12, 3. And it's interpreting Genesis 12, 3 in, in light of Jesus saying, that actually is about me. And here's the way I would say it. The way you treat God's people is the way you treat God, because the point of tonight's discussion is we are the agents of God's kingdom. We are the ones who make God known. And the way you respond to that, to us, to the people of God, is the way you respond to God. Thus, when you gave me a drink of water, well, when you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. When did we visit you in prison? Well, when you visited one of the, the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. And that would be, that'd be Christians who are in prison for the preaching of the gospel. Now, all kinds of prisons ministries get started because of that verse, which is technically not what the verse is saying, but prison ministries are still good because guess what? We're supposed to love everybody. Does that make sense then? I think the, the least of these brothers of mine in the gospel of Matthew is indeed the followers of Jesus. They're called least of these, they're called children and they're called little ones. And because the idea being that there are all these outcasts, these, these people that you don't loan to, the people that you don't give to, the people that you don't love because they can't love you back. Now note, in that community of the least of these children and loved ones would be tax collectors and Zacchaeus and wealthy members of Herod's family. And, and the way you treat them is the way you treat God. And that's your judgment on judgment day. But that's not the same thing as saying, okay, therefore we only love Christians. Because no, we're also told that when we love everyone, we are acting like God does. And that kind of goes back you know, there's, if you're familiar with the Calvinist and Armenian and the Reformed and the, and the non-Reformed debates, one of the pillars of Reformed theology, and I do not agree with this, I've just, I've never been convinced of it. One of the pillars of Reformed theology of Calvin was that Jesus only died for the elect. He only mm -hmm. died for the people that, were, that he chose. It's called limited atonement. If you've heard of uh, TULIP, the, the acronym, the L in TULIP is for limited atonement. Jesus only died for the, for the elect because he wouldn't waste his blood on the non-elect. I don't agree. I think Jesus died for everyone. And I think election is this complex woven of choice and sovereign, and sovereign will, as we've discussed before. That kind of goes in that camp a little bit, saying, oh, well, we only love the elect. And it's like, no, you don't only love the elect. We love everyone because when we love, we're acting like God. But the way you treat the Christians, that's going to determine what happens to you on Judgment Day. So what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. It means God with us. And if you listen to the podcast, we discuss the fact that the gospel of Matthew is framed with Emmanuel. So Matthew 1, 23, child's name shall be Emmanuel, which is not his name because they named him Jesus two verses later, which is kind of funny, by the way. But that's because Emmanuel was never meant to be a name. It's an identity. It's who he is. It's not his name. And then the gospel of Matthew closes in Matthew 28, 20 by saying, and lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the age. And the significance of that is that when we read Matthew 1, 23, we think, oh, Jesus was God with us, but he's not with us anymore because he died and went to heaven. No, he says, I'm with you always. Anybody know, how is he with us always then if he died and went to heaven? Because he granted his Holy Spirit. And that's kind of one of the key themes of the gospel of John. Right, so the Emmanuel pr uh, principle is, is God's presence amongst us. So let's turn to Leviticus 26. This is a really significant verse. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. And if anybody has it in their Bibles and wants to read that, 11 through 13. And then I'll, I'll comment on the context of the passage. I'm there. Thank you very much, Anthony. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. Uh, NRSV, I will place my dwelling in your midst and I shall not abhor you. 
and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be their slaves no more. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made your walk erect. Now, if you have a Bible that has like a heading above it that tells you kind of what the section's about, you might note that the beginning of Leviticus 26, verse 1, it says something like blessings for obedience. And then if you look down under above verse 14, it says in mine, I'm, just, I'm looking on my computer Bible, it says penalties of disobedience. So what's happening in Leviticus 26, because I think this is so significant, if you'll allow me to spend a few minutes on it. What's happening in, in Leviticus 26 is the covenant of God's covenant relationship with Israel is, is iterated. Let me explain. God makes a promise with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and then with Moses and with the Israelite people and the Jewish people. And that promise is, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And we call that a covenant. A covenant is a big fancy word for a relationship between a king and his people. And so God's saying, I'm going to be your king and you're going to be my sacred peoples. And here's what's going to happen. If you obey my laws, I'm going to bless you. And that's what you see in the verse 13 verses of Leviticus 26. If you obey my laws, here's what's going to happen. All right, so verse two, if you keep my Sabbaths and, and my sanctuary, I'm the Lord. If, verse three, if you walk in my statutes, verse four, I'm going to give you rain. In verse five, look, your threshing floors will be great. In verse six, I'm going to give you peace in the land. And uh, Verse seven, you're, I'll, I'll chase your enemies away. And, and I'm going to give you uh, offspring. Are, you're going to have this prosperity in land and family and peace and everything. It's going to be awesome. And then the climax of the promises is, Verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I'll walk among you and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Now, the significance of that is that Levit when Leviticus says, I will walk among you in verse 12, the word walk is the same word in Genesis 3 verse 8, when God walked in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. So very likely, and this is a very common way of, hey, by the way, I want you to connect what I'm saying with something I said earlier, is they would use the same language. When you see the same language in two biblical verses, it's often these biblical verses are to be tied together. This is a common Jewish way of interpreting the Bible that the New Testament picks up on. So very likely then the, the word walk in Leviticus 26, 12 is the same word in Genesis 3, 8. And you want to connect those to at the way that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. I will walk among you again. The reason why we know that that's the case, not just because we're good Jewish interpreters, is because we just have to go to the New Testament and find out. It's, it's going to be pretty easy. The language of Leviticus 26, 11, 12, and 13 is a certain kind of language. It, it evokes the imagery of something. What's that imagery? What's it expressing? A staple part of Jewish cultural, religious, and civic life. I'll give you a hint. Eden was one of these. I'll give you another hint. Jesus is another one of these. I'll give you another hint. You and I are one of these. I'll give you another hint. The New Jerusalem is one of these. No? That still didn't work? The blessing? Well, okay. Uh, no more specific than blessing. What kind, it's like, what kind of blessing? Well, it, it, it's conveying this imagery of something. Thing. I'll give you a hint. It's a thing or a place. Temple. Temple. <laughs> temple. It's temple imagery. So it says, I will dwell among you. I'll make my dwelling among you. 
and this is what I wrote about in my book, uh, These Brothers of Mine, as well as my book, Understanding the New, mm -hmm. New Testament in the End Times. The purpose of the temple is where God dwells. The reason why you have these debates these days about well, is God's going to, you know, is it going to be a third temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem or not? Is because people neglect what the temple is all about. If you think a temple is just a building that God promised, that, hey, I'm going to build a temple among you, then okay, there'll be another temple again, I guess. But if the temple is where God dwells, then there's simply no question. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Because John 1.14 says he tabernacled amongst us. And the, the word tabernacle in the Greek is skene. And it means that's the word for the tabernacle in, in the Old Testament. So Jesus clearly was this temple presence amongst us. That's what the gospel of John's all about, by the way. So this Emmanuel principle is God's presence amongst us. It's captured extremely well in, Levit in Leviticus 26. And the reason why I'm stressing so much Leviticus 26 is because this is kind of your key passage on it. It puts it in the context of the covenant, God's agreement between Israel and the people. And if you obey my laws, there's going to be your blessings. And by the way, you know, verse 14 and following, if you, and those, by the way, the, the, the promises of disobedience are like way longer than the 13 verses of promises of obedience, because we all know what's going to happen. And the key thing is some of you might remember about the disobedience is if you disobey, I'm going to kick you out of the land because what are you going to lose? You're going to lose my presence. If you obey, I'll dwell among you. But if you don't obey, it's the same thing that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. You can't be with me and I'm going to have to expel you. And that's the idea of exile is I'm going to kick you away from my presence. And obviously in the book of Ezekiel, God goes with them and then he comes back and all that good stuff there. All right, now, what I want us to look at next, and I gave you a bunch of references on your notes, is Ezekiel 37 reference. So it's Ezekiel 37, 23, and then 27 and 28, but we can kind of read that whole passage. And what you'll note, I'll give you kind of a clue already, is that Ezekiel is basically quoting Leviticus. So Ezekiel 37, 23 through 28. They shall not defile themselves anymore with the idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Mm -hmm. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Through what? 23? Through 28. Okay. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They, will, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Did you notice the resemblance with the book of Leviticus? I will be their God, and they'll be my people, and I'll dwell among them. And David will be their king over them. So what's happening in the book of Ezekiel, just to give you a little context, because I think this is so central here, is that... The Israelites have actually experienced the covenant, the disobedience and the promise of expulsion in the book of uh, Leviticus. They've been expelled from the land because they disobeyed the covenant. And this, and this expulsion is like, okay, wait a minute. I guess we're done because I thought, you know, that God was our God and 
obviously the Babylonians, God's bigger than our God because he beat, they beat us up. So our God must not even be all powerful like we thought. We thought he was the God of the nations and he can't even take care of the God of the nations. We're detached from the land and therefore this is not good. And Ezekiel comes along and says, okay, here's the deal. Yeah, you were sent in exile because of your sins. And this is not a good thing, but you deserved it. And God went with you because Ezekiel 1 actually opens up with Ezekiel having a vision of God. And the vision of God is by the river Shabar, which is in Babylon, meaning God appears to him in Babylon. It's like, hey, God's with us there. And now you have this great promise of this great restoration. And the beginning of Ezekiel 37 is this, the valley of dry bones. He's going he's gonna to resurrect these dead bones. They, they look dead. Can these dry bones live? Like, I don't know, Lord, can they? Yeah, they will. I'm going to resurrect them. And the promise is I'm going to restore them to the land and it'll be great. I'll set David, my king over them. And obviously David's dead for 300 and something years now, 400 years now. So it has to be a, a new David and I'll be their God and they'll, they'll be my people and it'll be awesome. So here's this promise of a restoration of the Leviticus principle that the Israelites were supposed to experience beforehand. They disobeyed, went into exile, and now God's going to restore them. Anybody have any questions or comments? Hey, Rob, this is Scott. Yeah, please. Go ahead, Scott. So back in Leviticus, it was a conditional covenant, right? And um, this one is unconditional, it sounds like. Okay. Uh, just, I'm just from reading this. Yep. This section we're in so i'm going okay why the switch i mean yep. we know that is israeli people are always disobedient but yeah that's uh, well, right they're never i don't want well, i don't know they, they, they seem to be obedient for a while which i guess is kind of human nature um but i'm just noticing the difference between the conditional covenant and the unconditional one here right and I don't mean to like toot my home, but I wrote about this in my book, These Brothers of Mine, because this is kind of the question that's on the table. All God's covenant promises are conditional. And what I mean by conditional is they're always yeah. dependent upon your response. Go to Nineveh and tell them they have 40 days and I'm going to wipe them out. But he doesn't wipe Nineveh out. Hmm. He doesn't do it. Why? Because it was conditional. It was, well, if they don't repent, then I'm wiping them out. But they repented, so he doesn't wipe them out. All God's promises are uh, covenantal promises are conditional because they're dependent upon the human response. At the hmm. same time, however, they're also unconditional because they're founded in the promise of God that God will ultimately bring it about. Okay. When they're grounded in the presence and the person of God, they're going to be done. And the answer is they, they were done in Jesus, though, because he's the one person who remained faithful th through and through. Now, the church is, by the way, kind of a good lesson for us also. The church today, the followers of Jesus, have an advantage over Israel in the past. In other words, we're just like them also, right? So we kind of say, hey, they were disobedient. You know, they kind of look good for a little while. It's human. It's, they're human. That's the whole point of it. That, that's why the incarnation is so important. Because if God, when God becomes a man, he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he was faithful and obedient. And therefore, God, he's the new David. And God's covenant promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the church has a little bit of an advantage. Maybe you can say an extremely great advantage too, because we have the spirit. But at the same time, when we rely upon the flesh, we become just like them. Mm, and so okay. when you see the church, you see sometimes millions of people or billions of people claiming to be Christian. 
but oftentimes a small remnant of people truly being Christian. And we're like, okay, but the church is like no better than Israel. Well, down at the bottom, there's this remnant in Israel. There's this remnant in the church that's always been faithful and continues to be faithful. And we're able to obey the covenant specifically because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But when we don't rely on the spirit, we become just like them also. So we have to be careful about criticizing Israel in the Old, in the Old Testament Israel. Yeah. There, but I think that, does that make sense then the answer to the question? I think it's, it's conditional and unconditional. Unconditional because God's going to do it, but conditional is depending on who, whether it's you or somebody else. But with regard to Abraham's covenant, that totally seems unconditional and everlasting, whether Abraham does anything or not. I mean, I, I will make, you know, I will bless, bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I will make your name great. And I will make you, I will, you will be a, you know, a great nation. And I mean, that seems unconditional. I mean, totally unconditional to me. So I, I don't know. And, and the answer is yes, <laughs> true, and yet at the same time, not true. So it, it, it's, a, it's a yes, no. So when you read the book of Genesis, you know, people read Genesis and think, oh, it's just a bunch of really cool stories about, about Bible characters. And actually about really bad Bible characters, by the way. They're almost all really bad. I mean, yeah, they all. They the all worst are, of yeah. them is Jacob. And what's happening there is the, the cycle of, of sin and, and expulsion from the land and the garden thing happening over and over again. But for some reason, God keeps blessing them anyways. Yeah. And the point of that is, is God's going to carry this promise out, even with a faithless people. And yet they like, they have just enough faith to kind of get themselves by. Hmm. And so what you see happening in the book of Genesis actually is people coming into the story and you're blessed because of the way you treated Israel or you're cursed because of the way you treated Israel. Right. And yet at the same time, you know, the individuals are, are still accountable before God for their, for their personal faithfulness. It's a mixed bag and it's a more complicated thing. It's not so easy to simply say, yes, no, it's unconditional. No, it's not unconditional. But the point of that actually becomes you get so far along in the story where God says, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I brought you out of slavery. I brought you back into the land and you did the same thing again. I'm kicking mm -hmm. you out and you're done. And the restoration is through Jesus. There can't be any other answer to that. And I know obviously because we can't we can't do it ourselves. Because we, we can't, can't do it ourselves. That's the whole do it that's the whole yeah. Christian theology right there is we can't yeah. do it ourselves. Yeah. And so the, you know the question that we always ask, you know, why was Jesus baptized? Because he was doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He was hmm. he was taking on the sin of the world. He was embodying Adam, he was embodying Abraham, he was embodying Israel, and he was repenting for them and obviously for us. Yeah, you mentioned the book that sort of addresses this. Yeah, it's called These Brothers of Mine. Yeah. And the first half of the book is really going to give you the theological answers and questions of Genesis 12, 3, and what does all that mean? And what about the promises of land? And what about the promises of family? And you know, do the okay. Jewish people still have a right to the land today? And da 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 And so I'm going to okay. deal with all that. And then the second half right. of the book kind of responds to common, common criticisms. Now, here's what I want to do. So Leviticus 26, I'm going to make this whole point. We're going to finish this point, and then we'll, we'll pick the rest of it up next week. Leviticus 26, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I'll walk among you. This great covenant promise. Ezekiel picks it up and says, God's going to still do this. It's going to be even greater than you expected. Now let's go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 7. And actually, let's read verses 3 and 7. Uh, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place 
is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Then will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Did you notice that Revelation 21 is quoting Ezekiel and quoting Leviticus? So the point of that is ultimately fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. Now, we can't stop there because this is what happens with evangelical uh, Christian theology too often. God makes this great promise. It's about heaven and the New Jerusalem, and someday it'll be fulfilled, and let's all sit back and wait till it happens. And the point that I'm trying to make actually is, is God's on a mission, and he's actually enlisted us to be the agents of that mission. Now, before I go any further, because we're not going to get that far tonight. When I say he's, going to, he's made us to be the agents of that mission, doesn't mean that we all have to become professional pastors and missionaries. And it, it means that you're an agent of his mission wherever God has placed you. Whatever occupation, whatever social status, whatever life stage you're at, maybe in a community, maybe in a school, maybe in a workplace, you are an agent of God's mission. And it's not just the professional pastors and mission. It's all of us. And it also doesn't mean that you have to go tell everybody about Jesus all the time. It means that we have to live like Jesus did all the time. And that is by loving even those lower than us, loving everybody, but even those, even those less than us, because that's when we act like God. Now, the reason why we can't just stop there, and the reason why that's just this bad theology to say, oh, it's, a, it's in the New Jerusalem, look, ultimately fulfilled, we're all good, let's sit back, fold our arms, and wait until the second coming happens. Because now I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which is two verses earlier on the notes there in in the outline. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And if somebody wants to read uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, if somebody wants to read that. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Did you notice, and you know, my Bible is the New American Standard Translation, and what it does is it puts in all caps whenever the New Testament's quoting the Old Testament. So it was really easy for me to see it because in my Bible, verse 16, the second half of it's in all caps. I will dwell on them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Paul is quoting both Leviticus 26.11 and Ezekiel 37. He's kind of combined the two verses together, which is okay because Ezekiel was quoting Leviticus anyways. And Paul says it's true now. In other words, you can't just go to Revelation 21 and go, oh, going to happen in the New Jerusalem. Let's sit back and relax and be easy because someday it'll all happen. Paul says it's happening now. And what he's talking about, of course, is that we are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And note verse 17, therefore come out from the midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. Or even skip down to chapter 7, verse 1, which is you know, it's a chapter break in the way, but that's okay. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
there you go. We're the agents of the mission. The mission which is to make God known. We do that by growing in the likeness and image of Christ. That likeness of, of an image of Christ means that we become the temple presence of God who dwells among his people. And we are now to go out into the world and be like Jesus to everyone at all times. Now, mind you, a really difficult task, but Lord Jesus, increase our faith. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. As we rely on the spirit, that's why that the last study was so significant, because our job is to grow in the likeness and image of Christ, which we do through prayer, through fasting, through the study of the scriptures, through serving, through you know, meditation, through acts of justice. Then we grow in the likeness and image of Christ. And now that's our mission. Take the temple presence of God to the world. So does that make sense? Promise of God is that he will dwell among us and we'll be his people and he'll be our, and he'll be our God. And he'll walk among us like he did in Eden. Ezekiel says, it's going to happen. It's going to happen, even though they were kicked out of the land. Paul says, fulfilled in Jesus, and therefore through the Spirit, fulfilled in you. And Revelation says, that's ultimately what the New Jerusalem is all about, which is exactly what I've been saying. The kingdom of God is, well, what is this going to be like in the New Jerusalem? So I'll stop there. Any questions or thoughts, comments, or snide remarks? That's a lot. And this, and what I've done the last two weeks, I'd say, look, if you could just like focus on that, that's the gospel and that's the kingdom. And that's the mission. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.